If I came to you and said, I've figured out all the problems in the world, I've solved it and the answer is 42, you might suddenly say, wait, what went into this calculation? How do I even know what's going on? And effectively, if we're not sharing what we're doing, we're asking people to take on trust. And if we're not doing open science, then we're keeping it closed for what? Is it for companies and to line a shareholder's pocket? I ain't got time for that. <laughs> Hi, I'm Stephanie Tumampos, and you're listening to Down to Earth, the show where we talk to incredible geoscientists about their science and its impacts on our planet. This season, we're speaking to a wide variety of folks to investigate all things open science. Coming from the Philippines, it's been challenging to access data to pursue my science. For example, if I want to access climate data from our national government portal, I need to send the government a formal request letter signed by my supervisor or committee member, an approved research or thesis proposal, a valid ID, a signed terms and conditions contract, and a completed data request form. And this is just for students. Full researchers have a different process they have to follow to access data. It's super bureaucratic. With countries starting to make their data accessible through programs like Copernicus, researchers like me now have an easier time conducting research. Of course, open science isn't just about open data. There are a whole bunch of different components that are part of this movement. So it makes me wonder, what could this whole open science movement do to enhance scientific pursuits for people all over the world? Well, this season, I'm on a mission to find out. This episode of Down to Earth is brought to you by the IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. The GRSS is a community of passionate researchers and practitioners who are working to benefit society through their science, engineering, education, and applications. This year, GRSS is excited to collaborate with the NASA Transform to Open Science initiative to celebrate the year of open science with a whole down-to-earth season devoted to this very topic. To learn more and get involved in the year-long events and celebrations, visit science.nasa.gov and search for Open Science. Very often we have the stereotype of like the lone scientist sitting in a lab on their own, but I will say that good open science, one of its biggest elements is people working together in a large group and recognizing each other's difference. This is Yo Yehudi. She's the executive director of an organization called Open Life Science that's dedicated to teaching people about ways to share their science openly and effectively with the community. I love thinking about all of the things that I could see people do. Um, I would like to see it become much, much more global. I would like to see it led by people who have historically been marginalized. And I, I want to be working with all of the leaders that I see in all of these fields in a more equitable way where we're thinking about the side effects of what we do for people, for science, and that can be side effects that are good and that can be side effects that are negative because I think sometimes we don't think about those enough. I'm really interested in your story and what makes her so passionate about the open science movement. Despite the fact that she's a significant advocate for open science now, she wasn't always this excited about it. In fact, she discovered open science completely by accident. I didn't get into academia the straightforward way where you go and you have an undergrad and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do, so maybe I'll do a master's. And then you say, oh, I still don't know what to do, so I'm going to do a PhD. Um, I actually was um, a software engineer and I accidentally ended up working at an academic spin-out company. Um, but at the spin-out that I was working at, we had very closed code. And it seemed so bizarre to me that I was creating this code to do important science stuff funded by the EU. And 
when I left, the, the code disappeared. It might as well not have existed. That's so frustrating. So how did that impact you? It sort of felt a bit like, what's the point? Publicly funded and nothing ever happens from it. No one's benefiting. Um, and then fast forward a few more years, I was lucky enough to apply for a job at the University of Cambridge, where I got um, a position working as a research software engineer on an open source biological data warehouse, or to translate that into simpler and less complicated sounding English. Uh, we took d data that biological scientists had been working with. And we integrated it, um, basically took lots and lots of different data files from different places, made it easy for people to access that data without having to go through all of the files themselves. Uh, and that was open source. And I immediately could see how incredible the uptake was compared to the closed work that I'd been doing. Um, people could reach out anywhere from the world and they'd say, hey, we've just set up an instance of your software and we have locusts um, that we've been storing locust data um, in, in our instance of the software. And then someone else would be storing mouse data. And then a third person would be storing Chinese hamster ovaries. Hmm. And it was really easy to see how the open work was actually allowing us to proliferate and grow stronger. Because we were sharing our code, we were getting more and more users, we were getting more feedback. And it was really empowering. Um, and then there was one final bit of that journey that kind of introduced me to open science was one day I was looking at, I think, a Stack Overflow thread. And someone said, is it normal that an academic peer reviewer might want to see my code? And I'm like, of course. Why Why wouldn't it be? What's like peer review is peer review. And if you can't just say the answer is 42 without saying, hey, got to your calculations. <laughs> And so that sort of set me off on my journey. It's crazy to think that if you'd stayed in the private sector, you might not have heard about open science until much later, if at all. I mean, open science is a practice has technically been around for decades, but it's only just starting to gain more momentum. So in many ways, it feels new. But before we go any further, I want to define open science for our listeners. What is open science? How would you define it? Uh, I will say that open science is the active effort of including the people who are affected and need to consume your science uh, in all steps of the science. That's a very con concise and good definition of open science. M most of the time when I read open science, it's like a long, long sentence, but that's a really good definition. So what are some components that make up open science? So I'm going to start with one that I think I don't hear people say a lot, but that I think is actually one of the most important parts of open science, and that's people. Uh, so people create the science. People are affected by science when we create it. Uh, people peer review science. People publish science. Um, and if you are very, very lucky, then you might even have a community of people working with you to create it. Apart from people, I would say that there's, um, it's good to look at the research lifecycle and think what you're doing at any given time. So uh, very early on when you're designing your experiments, you might have a data management plan. You might have protocols, ethics approvals. Very often there's no reason not to share those early steps. And then later on, as you're doing them, you might have data, you might have publications, you might have code. Um, and one that I don't see talked about enough is hardware. 
So um, it, a lot of science machines are really expensive, but open hardware can actually make things more maintainable and more affordable and more democratized, really. That's really a good point, because I don't really hear a lot of people mention open hardware very often when they talk about open science. So to summarize, open science includes people who are willing to collaborate, open data so they can work together, open methods and hardware for analyzing the data, and open source for understanding how the data was analyzed. You also mentioned open peer review, which is about making the peer review process more transparent. And then there's open access, which is about access to publications that interpret the science. Now, why is open science important? How does it shift the current closed structures of the scientific process? Sure. Um, so I think it's it's fair to say that some science and some research is closed, but I wouldn't uh, by any means say that all of it is. Um, what I would say is that perhaps we lack, we lack uh, structures and incentives, uh, and in some cases infrastructure, for sharing everything easily. Um, and sometimes that's also, um, what's the word I'm looking for, community and interpersonal infrastructure as much as necessarily technical uh, infrastructure or university infrastructure. So, for example, uh, once you've done some science, you write it up in a paper and you publish that paper. And generally people are considered better scientists the more papers they write. Now, th there's definitely some flaws in that particular way of measuring things because it's definitely emphasizing quantity over quality. But it sort of sets you up for um, understanding some of the challenges around science and open science. Um, because the, the first uh, and perhaps most obvious flaw here is that actually a lot of people can't afford to read scientific articles because the journals that publish them will actually charge you to download a copy. Yeah, access can be a huge barrier. But as you said, part of the problem is this focus on high publishing rates and, of course, impact factors. So what do you think needs to change so that more scientists are embracing open science practices? I think that there's two biggest places to change this. One is scientific funding. So long as we don't incentivize sufficiently and reward people doing the bits that are these days considered extra around open like um, sharing what you're doing um, or creating metadata so that people can correctly interpret your data then it's it's never going to change the other big place apart from journals which we've already mentioned previously is research institutes themselves so long as we assess people the same way we've assessed people for 20 or 30 or 50 years, then it's going to be the same people reaching the top using the same methods. Um, so I think it's, it's culture uh, and the people who have the power to enforce and reward culture that need to make the biggest change. I believe that these days there is enough grassroots to make it adoptable. Changing culture around science seems like a big challenge because for the longest time, this has been the structure that we've been following. So why should we bother? What's the point? Wow. Um, why should we bother? So I will argue that uh, good science is science that um, actually can be replicated. And effectively, if we're not sharing what we're doing, we're asking people to take on trust. But it goes deeper than that as well, because we make mistakes all the time. So like uh, a couple of years ago, early on in the COVID pandemic, the UK government was using Excel sheets in an XLS format, and they lost a bunch of the positive test results because the format wasn't correct. 
So people were doing science, it seemed valid, and no one spotted the error. Uh, and I would argue that it's a lot easier to spot errors, to correct them, to improve them if we actually have access and we can see what's going on. That seems pretty reasonable, you know. I mean, you need. I mean, you talked about the need for general populations to trust science, and we we've had this experience of you know failing this trust. Arguably, science is complicated, and the general public might not understand it. So, why should we make it open if they can't understand it? So, I think that is. An interesting point, but a little unfair um, to assume that only scientists can understand science. Um, there's also some burden on science itself. We intentionally write articles that are hard to understand and hard to read because it makes us sound smart. Uh, we don't have to do that. We can use layman's English easily enough. I mean, there's certainly always going to be technical terms, etc., that you need for certain domains, but that doesn't mean that you have to use moreover every other sentence <laughs> um and you are also right that there are people who maybe would read a, a scientific article and say this doesn't make any sense to me um but certainly they're going to have a lot better chance at interpreting it than if they don't have access to it i love that you challenge these questions as a science communicator i'm a science communicator so i totally agree with with what you're saying here um, what does open science allow the general public to do? How does it bring them into our process in science? I think one of the most important things that the general public can do when we work openly is the general public can be part of the science. Uh, so science is all too often portrayed as ivory tower. And even when you get to terms like participatory science or citizen science, depending on how it's implemented, that can still be very the great scientists are telling everyone what to do, which uh, I, I'm putting in quotes just in case that doesn't come across sufficiently sarcastic on my voice. Um, but actually, given that science affects people, it's all too common that we don't involve the very people who would be affected by it. Um, and by working openly uh, as we work, there's a lot better chance that people can be involved, even if they don't have uh, a doctor in their name. There's so very many reasons why it's logical, apart from just, you know, nothing about us without us. There's so many reasons to have lots of people involved and able to participate and talk and make science more equitable. And how do you respond to people who say citizen science isn't legitimate or high quality? Um, sometimes people will say, I'm worried that if people who aren't experts do the science, then it may be of lower quality. Certainly, I know that I signed up to a showerhead test um, where they sent me a bunch of swabs and some very specific instructions and to test my water for, I think, nitrites and nitrates. And it's not my area of science. So I, I wouldn't feel confident uh, saying exactly what the tests were. Um, but it, it was quite nice to be the citizen doing the citizen science and then sending this kit back to the lab. Um, and because it was fun and kind of cool, I took photographs of every step and I put it online. And someone said, hey, yo, um, you've mixed up your nitrites and your nitrates. Um, so I feel like that in, in um, a nutshell is an example of why open science is great, even when it's citizen science. I think it's actually also really important to say that when I talk about open science, I mean responsible open science. And that means it's not exploitative. 
um, and that when things should be private, they are kept private. So I'm, I'm never going to advocate that we should actually be releasing medical records or someone's travel records where actually suddenly anyone can know where they are at any time of the day. So there's all sorts of scenarios. We're being very careful and thoughtful about what you release is important. Um, and when we come to things like, uh, let's say, indigenous data, where there's been a history of exploitation from other cultures, then I don't have a right to, uh, to, to see that and to know that if they say I don't, I think that's quite a reasonable assertion. I love this clarification and what we're talking about when it comes to open data, responsible open science. I think this should be emphasized because, you know, in my uh, in my experience from a developing country, scientists are more reserved when it comes to these um, open science yet. It's still like a concept not fully embraced. And I think this kind of goes back to when you mentioned needing a culture change too. I mean, perhaps we need to fully shift science so it's far less about what we do as individuals and focus more on what our science can do for humanity. But perhaps there that requires more of a shift globally in all sectors and not just in science, right? Undeniably. Um, I mean, open science is largely dominated by countries in Europe and North America. And I think it's fair for people to be concerned. Like if you say, you're telling me to upload this to a repository, but they're all in Europe or, well, it seems somewhat fair that someone might say in a developing country, I'd much rather have it on an open science repository in my country. You know, the higher income area ways are not the only ways. Um, and I think that's an important part of going back to recognizing that open science means many things. It may mean different things depending on where you are. Yo has brought up a lot of questions I've been considering as I think about how open science might play a role in the work I do. Like the question of what open science will mean to researchers in different countries and how open science might replicate power imbalances globally. After the break, Yo and I dig into these questions and I learn how she and her organization, Open Life Science, are taking little steps towards ensuring their science is truly open and equitable. Are you a student or recent grad ready to reach your full potential in the geosciences? Then you need to join the Geoscience and Remote Sensing Society. With over 75 chapters in 94 different countries, you'll connect with a diverse community of professionals, experts and advisors who can inspire your science and help shape your career. Find support and fellowship as part of our Young Professionals Network. Advance your skills through our GRSS schools, student travel grants, workshops, and more. Be at the forefront of geoscience research by joining our technical committees and network with geoscientists from around the world at IGARS, our flagship conference. Our incredible international community is ready to welcome you. Learn more and get connected today by visiting grss-i-e.org. Welcome back. Today I'm speaking to Yo Yehudi, Executive Director of Open Life Science. As we outlined near the start of the episode, the open science movement is about opening up all aspects of the scientific research process. This includes sharing our data, our methods, our source code, and even making our peer review process more transparent. I'm really excited about the prospects of open science for my own research. 
I'm also excited about how open science encourages more cross-disciplinary collaborations. I could totally see myself working with urban planners, for example, to expand my initial air pollution research into how building structures impact air pollution clusters in the city. But as Yo rightfully pointed out, it's not like we can just make everything open. For example, sharing people's medical records openly is not a viable option. Plus, there's the added questions of who has the right to make data open and how have historical power imbalances impacted the desire for people to open their science. In some ways, this movement kind of sounds like the West asking the rest of the world for continued sacrifices so they can benefit, which personally makes me itchy. But perhaps I'm misguided. Perhaps there is a way to ensure open science doesn't just replicate existing power imbalances. Here's what Yo thinks. It's very challenging. I definitely don't have all the answers because philanthropy tends to be inherently colonialist when it's coming from richer countries towards developing nations. Um, but then the, the other side of that coin is not to be sharing resources that previously were probably gathered through exploitation. And it feels like neither of those is a good answer. And I'm not sure what the third or fourth or fifth answer in these areas are. Um, I definitely think that uh, more universities signing up and actually agreeing to things like DORA, where we agree not to assess people merely on how many nature publications they have, would help. A quick aside for our listeners, DORA stands for the Declaration on Research Assessment. This declaration recognizes the need to improve how researchers and their outputs are assessed. Basically, DORA is encouraging institutions all over the world to develop new policies and practices for hiring, promotion, and funding decisions. The declaration suggests that we stop using the journal impact factor to decide a researcher's value. Instead, it encourages institutions to evaluate researchers based on the content of their research, even if it's just not yet published. Along this vein, this declaration suggests that institutions should also consider the value and impact of all the researchers' outputs, including the datasets and software they create. Finally, Dora emphasizes the importance of assessing the influence on policy and practice that results from the research too, as an important measure of community impact. Now, back to the interview. Can you give an example of how these power imbalances might play out in open science research assessments. Um, if a grant reviewer gets a grant application from a high-income country that's been practicing open science for years, and then they get some they get a similar application from a low-income area um, or lo- low-resource area, then it's not surprising if the low-resource grant doesn't tick as many boxes as the grant from the high-resource area. And if we're judging them as though they are not coming as though they're coming from the same place rather than from very different places, then we're going to say, for some reason, we never got anything competitive. And it's like, that's not true. It's just that you're not even assessing it fairly. We're pretending that there aren't systemic injustices. Um, so just having people actually understand that the system isn't fair would make a big difference, I think. Okay, but how do you personally navigate, I mean, through your experience, the tension of colonialism? in open science, for lack of a better term? I'm terrified of making a misstep every day. Um, There's some things that I can do from the small side of where I work. Uh, So, for example, open life science, the way we train people is through cohorts. Um, So we we have like a 16-week training program 
where people get one-on-one mentors. And then every other week we have a call where we talk about different aspects of open science uh, with expert speakers and also chances for people to interact with each other as a group so that they're learning and engaging this in a way that really helps to embed. Um, And we do have a very global set of participants and we've definitely encountered some barriers we can help with and others that we can't. So, for example, um, we have a micro grant program where any participant can say, I need a headset and I need some money for Internet, please. And so we, we can we can sort of deal with some of the resource issues. But if someone doesn't have power, there's not a lot we can do. We've even tried, for example, shipping them batteries to give them an extra few hours of laptop charge. Um, and that still sometimes isn't enough and they're hard to ship. But I think it's still a lot more than many people do do, which is recognize that, that people come from different sets of resources and that if we can at least try and level the playing field with resources we have, that is something. It's not everything. Um, and I'm always ears open because I think it's important to center marginalized voices rather than voices of people who already have advantages. And I probably do stuff wrong. And I said that terrifies me. But what terrifies me more is not taking steps to at least try to fix things. It seems like you are so courageous in making bold moves. I mean, starting Open Life Science has been a bold move for you. You mentioned a little bit of how you started it, but could you elaborate more? Like who who your partners are? How did it come together? Can you share a little bit more about that? Absolutely delighted. There are actually four organizers of Open Life Science at the moment. Um, We sprang out of an initiative from Mozilla that initially was teaching people uh, working openly, very tech-oriented, which I suppose isn't surprising from someone who makes a web browser. These days, there are um, three other people alongside me in the director's team. There's Malvika Sharan. Uh, she's Indian-German, based in the UK. We have Berenice Batu, who is French, based in Germany. And we have Emmy Tseng, who is from Hong Kong and based in the Netherlands. So we already have quite an ethnically diverse team from different backgrounds, which I think is really part of the strength and the reason I think that we're able to make some of the connections that we make. And we we, we found it in 2019 based on the common itch that we, we knew that community in life science was important and that open science was important. And we couldn't think of a better name. And three years, nearly four years later, we're like, oh, yeah, it's open life science. And we don't only do life science. Uh, <laughs> basically, anyone from any domain is welcome to participate in our cohort. But broadly, it's been networking. It's th- that's why I go back to saying that people are part of the biggest part of open science. So it's, it's, been, it's been a community effort to get us to the 400 and something people that we are in the community these days. I really like it when you say the center of everything that you're doing is the people. You're very people-centered. And I think that's what drives other people to come together to help you in this initiative. And I've seen online that you're passionate about disability justice. Was there a specific experience that led you to support this initiative? No. <laughs> um, I I could say, you know, make up a story about my brother having gone blind at a young age. No, there's nothing like that. I just don't see why, because someone is born slightly differently than me, I shouldn't bother to include them. We're all people, we're all important, and very often 
if no one sets the norms, then people will just ignore disability inclusion. And if I can try and set the norms to make other people work similarly and provide a, a way to help, then that's what being an ally is. It's actions. It's not words. and It's not a badge I can wear. For sure. So how are you taking action to change norms in the work you do? Um. It's, it's, it's interesting. It's a challenge. It terrifies me again every day. Um, I, I think one of the, the big challenges around equity in general is that people are so afraid to make a misstep, they don't make any step. But we have, we're always learning is probably the best way I'd put this. We have uh, some pro- procedures and policies around hearing-based inclusion and language-based inclusion that we implemented a couple of years ago that we're quite proud of. Um, So whenever we release one of our videos, we get people to review our captions, to correct them, um, and then to upload that to YouTube. And when we have calls, we make sure that we have transcripts so that people who are in a quiet room can still listen, participate using the transcript, or someone who is hard of hearing, or someone for whom the language isn't first, or just someone who gets distracted easily. So that's one thing that we've been focusing on. We are running an event very soon for visual impairment inclusivity. We will do our best, as always, to to change based on feedback. Um, I think that's the most important part of living with values is if you get feedback that something you're doing isn't aligned with your values that you need to change. You can't just invite someone to the room and say, cool, we've done diversity now, but you need to figure out what makes them stay in the room and what makes them want to invite other people into the room. Yeah, I agree with you. And we've been talking about the past and the present status of open science, but let's talk a little bit about the future. What excites you about the future of open science? What do you think the future will look like? Oh, oh, that is such a good question. I I, I love thinking about all of the things that I could see people do. Um, I would like to see it become much, much more global. I would like to see it led by people who have historically been marginalised so that we can get the perspectives we need so that we don't end up with yet another tech product that doesn't uh, recognise dark skin, but instead that we actually have things, different points of view where science isn't weird and to decompact weird that stands for Western, educated, industrialised, rich and democratic. And there's, there's too much research that's only done on grad students that need a few extra dollars. But actually, I want to have people telling me what open science means in Kenya and telling me that I'm wrong in the UK. And I, I want to be working with all of the leaders that I see in all of these fields in a more equitable way where we're thinking about the side effects of what we do for people, for science. And that can be side effects that are good and that can be side effects that are negative because I think sometimes we don't think about those enough. Talking with Yo about open science has made me excited for the potential of this movement. Her enthusiasm for taking steps towards equity and inclusion and her willingness to be vulnerable makes me realize we don't have to have all the answers right away in order to get involved in open science. So I think I'll keep digging. I started this episode talking about the bureaucratic and arduous process of accessing data in the Philippines. So for our next episode, I'm going to talk to some scientists about how we can make that data open. In the meantime, reach out to Yo Yehudi and learn more about her work at Open Life Science. My Twitter handle is at Yo Yehudi. But also, if Open Life Science sounds like something that's interesting to you, then the next time we are opening applications for a cohort will be in the new year, early um, 2023. Um, and you can find more about us at openlifesci.org. 
Don't forget to follow the Down to Earth podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And go follow our sponsors at IEEE underscore GRSS on Twitter and Instagram and IEEE Geoscience and Remote Sensing on Facebook and LinkedIn. This episode was produced by Nicole Bedford from Nicole Bedford Films with help from me, Stephanie Tomampos. Graphics and design by Mylene Briggs of Killa Media. And a special thanks to Yvonne Ivy Parker and Keely Roth for their support. I'm Stephanie Tomampos and you've been listening to Down to Earth.